Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode was going to be called Glitter Balls Up, but having recorded it, uncancelled seems a bit more apt, and it contains some tattoo talk. Tattoos have been around a long time, even longer than Justin Bieber. The oldest dates back to 3250 BC and was found on a man nicknamed Otzi beneath a glacier in the Alps. Tattoos remain on the skin for life, but skin cells don't. As they die, the old skin cells pass the ink onto the new cells. That's upcycling in action, isn't it? It became fashionable in the late 19th and early 20th centuries for aristocrats to be tattooed. Winston Churchill's own mother had a snake tattooed on her wrist. Yes, Churchill's mother was an emo. In Italy, police arrested a mafia fugitive after seeing his distinctive tattoos in the cooking tutorials he'd been uploading on YouTube. In the US, more women than men have tattoos. 59% of women as compared with 41% of men. And your skin is pierced 50 to 3,000 times per minute by a tattoo machine. And that is why it hurts like shit. Ah, shit. My agent's ringing. Hang on. That's my guest today, Sean Walsh. Tattoos were introduced by sailors like Captain Cook, who were inspired by the tattoos they saw on their travels. Apparently, a pig tattooed on one foot and a rooster on the other were said to protect a seaman from drowning. Sorry, but ever since I used to watch Captain Pugwash as a kid, I've always loved saying seaman. This was based on the logic that because neither a pig nor a rooster can swim, it would help get a sailor swiftly to shore if he fell in the water. That's a bit like me tattooing a dog on one ear and a hyena on the other and thinking, well, because they can't speak Japanese, I'll soon be able to. And finally, a man called Lucky Diamond Rich is the most tattooed person on the planet with 100% of his body tattooed. That includes the inside of his mouth, his eyelids and, yes, his foreskin. Sorry, sorry, right, 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 right. Yes. Um, hang on, where they gone? Sean is one of the circuit's best loved and most talented comedians. He was inspired to take up stand-up as a teenager after watching a friend of both his and mine, Stephen Grant, compare a gig in his hometown, Brighton, at the Comedia. He took to the stage soon afterwards and things quickly started to go pretty swimmingly for him, from awards to TV to tour shows. And the rest would have been history. Until that fateful day or night, three years ago, when he kissed his Strictly dance partner, Katia Jones. To quote the Libertines lyric in his Twitter bio, kicked out at the world and the world kicked back a lot fucking harder. But that is all changing now. Sean and I talked about music, running, drink, trauma, cancel culture, comedy heroes, reality TV, fame, hopes and dreams. But I started by asking him about his tattoo. So there's two X's behind my ear on my neck. Yeah. And they are the, um, it's quite embarrassing really, but they are a nod to the eyes in the Blink-182 logo. Niche. So most people that have a Blink-182 logo as a tattoo will have got that in their teens, but Mm -hmm. I got that two years ago. Why do you, so do you think that's in keeping with your kind of outlier, I'll just do it my fucking way sort of behaviour? Like they did it then, I'm doing it now. Well, do you know what? I'll tell you what it was. The truth is, the band means so, so fucking much to me. So much to me. And I've always described the band as my, you know, your music is your friend. 
and it's there with you through the good times and through the bad times and i and i felt like i you know you just want you want some sort you want to wear them don't you if you do you know if you're like me and and that's just there because it's I don't know. Yeah, it's just exciting. It's part of me. I feel like the band is part of me. Yeah, it's funny how music, I don't know if you have this, but music has such an impact on me that if things are really shit, I find it really hard to listen to music because it all it all kind of has such an impact on me. It's like almost too intense, like at the absolute extreme of emotion, of upset. I can't really listen to it. And then when I'm starting to come out of a really bad phase then music starts to help me but there's a sort of spectrum do do you have the same that when you're off the edge of the spectrum it's quite hard to let music in right I know exactly what you're talking about and I I remember that but actually I think it's yeah you must exercise your exercise I do of course I do yeah yeah oh yes of course well yes this is what yes yeah um so so I think that I listen to the music when I run and I run as much as I can I've been quite busy recently but I run as much as I can so the music is sort of you know in in hard times when you're running to you're kind of running you're almost sort of running away from the problems but you're also running to try and find some fight in you do you know what I mean yeah. like to, just to get some sort of dopamine some endorphins some self-belief out of that run and the music the music is 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 related to that run. do you listen to music while you run then oh, I, <clears throat> I sing you do and you I'm, probably can't I'm, hear how bad it is because you're listening to music i do you know what i have in the past i've paused it to hear how how loud and bad it is and it is both those things is it do you not do you not notice from passers-by from the reaction can you read the room I'm, and go this isn't my best I'm, be- <laughs> I'm buzzing too much. I'm so you're on such like- an endorphin high. You're like, I'm loving this. You all need to hear it as well. Well, it's just, you don't mind that I'm making a cup of tea, do you? No, it's like, have you got an old school kettle then that whistles? Y- yes. Do you know why? Is that because you're very hip or very poor? No, or- not at all. It's neither of those things. I think it's because if you want a cup of tea, what's the rush? Let's well, just... I mean, you're on, you're doing a podcast, so that's a rush, but not to everyone. <laughs> Appreciate that. If you did so this like... on your, if you did this on your own podcast with McCaffrey, it'd be bloody over because yours only lasts about seven minutes. Not the time for a cup of tea. I, I think you're exploiting the Namaste motherfuckers looser format. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. I'm here now. Um, uh, yes, no. I just think you know, if you know, we can be patient about some things in life. We want everything instantly. Do you know what? I can wait another few minutes for a cup of tea. I'll be all right. Yeah, that's good. And if the world waits with you, so be it. That's worth waiting for. <laughs> it's, um, so the running, because I do, um, we, you know, we'll get straight in with the light topics. So I also uh, have had my bouts of kind of quite dark depression. And yes. only for me later than you. So at your, age, at your young age, Sean, I'd never suffered from depression. And then in my 40s, I really played catch up quite well. And... I'd always, well, I hadn't always run, but I'd been running for about 10 years by then. And even when I was going in and out of, I was having group therapy in a psychiatric hospital every day. And I didn't tell any, I didn't tell my kids that's where I was going. They just thought I was going to work. And then at the end of the day in this hospital, they'd have this, um, it wasn't like I was sectioned, otherwise I wouldn't have been coming home, but it was, it was a daily thing, yes. really committed to the therapy. And then at the end of the day, they always had like a yoga thing or a thing in the hospital, like a session that was like a physical, let's get into our kind of bodies. And I did one of them. I was like, oh, no, I'd sooner just go for a run. So then I used to belt home and always go for a run. And then my mate who lives opposite was like, you are the most high-functioning depressive because you like, you go out the house <laughs> looking good, like you're going to work so your kids don't know you're depressed. You do the sessions and you come home and then you go for a run to sign off your depressed day. But it really was for me, it was like sort of, it was like... I mean, obviously, I'm an awesome depressive, like very, very successful depressive. But it was kind of um, <laughs> award winning. But it was for me, it really was about sort of sanity. There's something it is a sort of for me, it's partly the chemicals and it's but I don't listen to music. My It's as near as I get to being mindful. I'm just with my thoughts. So it's interesting that you get a similar kick, but you have the soundtrack. It is my meditation. I would say that when I put on, it's, it's ridiculous, and I am fully aware of how ridiculous it sounds, but when I put on Blink and I go for the run, 
that is my that's my, that is my escape and I, I might not be left with you know it might it might not just be me and my thoughts there might, might also be some very terrible singing from <laughs> a Californian band but it's you know it's my escape it's my absolute escape um and I can't I can't believe if you had said to the like 25 year old me that these would words would be ever pouring out of my mouth and just I just wouldn't be able to comprehend that my friend Packer said once about people that run when you're in your 20s you look at them and you just think they're they're like aliens that have just been sent from another planet have no you know no relation to these people whatsoever and but there you go you you get you get older and you have to you realize that you have to <laughs> you know you've got to find a way of coping with this and i don't know when i say this i don't what know what do you mean I by mean, this yeah well i don't know if i'm i suppose i don't know if i mean life or if i mean showbiz and i and i mean showbiz to any extent whether that be at the sort of top or you know in the clubs which is still you know is still a form of showbiz it's um it's a brutal world out there god knows i've been through it and and so you know the, the 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 ups and the downs and i'm not talking about career highs and career lows i'm talking about from a gig to gig show to show meeting to meeting basis those ups and downs extremely unhealthy and we as performers have to learn to cope with that and i think if you look at back in the day if you look at the sort of old school the way that's that you know the way to deal with that seemed to be alcohol and drugs and sex and i think that that's probably i think the world has slightly moved on from that perhaps and and we really we kind of know where that goes i think and we see it all around us i remember when i started out on the circuit which was you know was quite late in life but i'd worked mm-hmm. with comedians for you know a couple of decades before that and the kind of idea that when you start gigging, you'll have a drink to steady your nerves and then you'll have a drink if you have a good gig and then you'll have a drink if you have a bad gig. And it's like you are going to be in a place that's serving booze every night. And if you're going to have to have a relationship with booze, even if it's just one or just two, you are signing up to drinking a hell of a lot over a number of years. And I've never Absolutely. really seen any. And if you incorporate drinking into your I've always been not very good at um, middle ground so I've, when I used to drink I used to drink a lot and now I barely drink at all and I just knew if I was someone who incorporated that into my kind of ritual that way madness would lie madness would lie absolutely I think I was very lucky I did a comedy course so you did Jill Edwards on. course in Brighton right that's how you started I, out that's that's a yes that's how I started performing yeah absolutely and and um uh, she, she I, I, do you know what? I think Stephen Grant is one of my heroes growing up and a friend now, a phenomenal talent. He was my he, comedy mentor when I started. He took me under his wing and mentored me for the first 18 months that I started. So I also have a very soft spot for him. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I love him very much. Um, a brilliant, brilliant brilliant comedy mind and a passion for it that is difficult to be matched. But, um, and, you know, without a doubt, the, no disrespect to anyone else, but my, you know, my tip for the best compare that I've ever seen. Yeah, I agree. So, so, um, so, so, you know, I think Stephen came in to do a talk what, in the Jill Edwards comedy course in like sort of the penultimate lesson or something. I was so, couldn't believe it, starstruck. Stephen was coming in. And I think one of the things he sort of warned people about, you know, Stephen's, <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't mind, he's, he's, you know, straight-laced, isn't he? Is that the term, straight-laced? Is that how they use it? It's old term? school. People my age say that. I'm, I'm glad to know okay. that the millennials are using it too. That's good. Bridging yeah. the gap across the generations. Yes, yes, yes. Hopefully passing it down to Gen Z. So Stephen um, kind of warned everyone about it. And, he, and I won't name drop, but he did quite unprofessionally you know, give a couple of names that of people that he thought could have perhaps gone on to bigger and better things. And I knew when I heard Stephen say that, and I knew how much I loved alcohol as a young man, I knew that 
that that need I needed to absolutely keep the two apart. And so, despite my act in my in my twenties, because you talked despite, a lot about being drunk, right? Hangovers and how it was to be drunk. That that was the kind of a lot of your a lot of your material I, was about that. I think I was very unfortunate in that the the it was a kind of bad timing in that when I went through a period of doing quite a lot of stand-up on television, the the material that was sort of available to me was the show, was one show that we called Sean to be Wild, which was purely, it was so mad, I was saying it to someone the other day, it was an hour show purely about alcohol because I was 20. Five, 26 <laughs> and I wasn't doing Is there alcohol involved in you thinking up that incredible title? <laughs> it was actually Josh Widdicombe's <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> I was using it, it was called Sword to be Wild, a bit tongue in cheek, but when you're, you know, yeah, I don't think you have to be a certain type of act for people to kind of get that you're being tongue in cheek, I think. That's the trouble with irony, isn't it? It's uh it gets gets ten percent of people and the rest are like, oh right, that's what you Yes. Yes. So you exactly, would so you yeah. sewed together an hour of uh, booze stories for that show. Booze story I mean I don't really tell stories as such, but yeah, you know, sorry to you know be pedantic. But yes, I I I I I kind of um exhibited my kind of illustrated my life. Um which I think is kind of what it is. Uh, but, 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 and despite that, and people going, God, are you hammered when, when you're on stage because of the way I look and uh, or certainly more so looked and sound, that, that people thought that I was drunk, but actually I never, I never ever in my career, I can say that I've never touched a drink before a gig, unless it was a late show, that was my rule. Because if you're in Edinburgh and it's one in the morning. Yeah, and you've done five I mean, shows. It, it's yeah. just stupid. You might as well, you know, the audience are absolutely gone, so you might as well meet them like halfway. But I've never had a drink before a show because I knew that would be totally and utterly destructive. So was it, because your whole thing and, and Lion King, which is what you got nominated for in Edinburgh, right? The poster for Lion King was... Uh, was like I don't I don't give a shit wasn't it it was like a sort of fuck you this is the way it is your whole vibe was that sort of disheveled I don't care but that obviously wasn't really what was going on in terms of you writing material and doing really well I mean that was a big deal being nominated however many years in you were that's that's really significant right and it wasn't the newcomer you were nominated for the show for the main, and, yeah. yeah it was I was definitely you know it was the, I would say it was one of the highlights of my career I remember it very well and I think that the, 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 that was just, I know, the, I really like that poster. I think it's probably my favourite ever poster. I'm in bed. And it is, to, yeah, describe suit. it. So you're in bed with just so crap in, everywhere. I've got, my, I'm, I've got my, my old big long hair. I'm in a very messy bed. There's like a kebab, there's a bottle, there's a hammer and that's smashed an alarm clock. You know, that kind of all those tropes of someone that doesn't want to get up. And I, But I was in a suit. And that, you know, that kind of, I like that because it was always for me, there was, there was this relationship between, like I was in a suit, which is what comedians, you know, would wear. Certainly back then, it was more prominent. And, and yet there was something, you know, I think I felt like it was, you know, I was in the suit. I was, I was meant to be ready in time for the show, but it sort of gone wrong and I'd woken up late. And that was very representative of that time in my life. Um, I don't, I, it wasn't, because I remember someone said to me, a friend that I had toured, was the tour manager on Amos's tour. I and you used to support him, him Stephen. Oh, yeah, I used yeah. to support Stephen. Oh, he is a I lovely adore. man, Stephen. Oh, I love him so much. We I like anyone called much. Stephen. I think that's what we're learning in <laughs> yes. this episode. Yes. They're called John. Um, we could take him or leave him. But Stephen's amazing <laughs> yes. people. <laughs> but he said to me one night, he said, oh, you know, why are you... And he was, being, he was being friendly. Sorry, it sounds like he was being antagonistic. But he was like, why are you doing all this stuff where you're trying to look you know, like cool and, and, and kind of had this bad boy image. And I, that was, that was absolutely, that had never occurred to me. And that was absolutely um, a mistake. And I do, that I was certainly not, I was just a guy in his twenties who, you know, the joke was kind of, I'm hungover and I'm running late. And I was in my twenties 
and those two things were probably usually the case. <laughs> and did you, because you've, it, it struck me, and actually I read your, um, an Insta post earlier today where you talked about, you know, you in Brighton and having what looked like a very kind of restorative time and saying, you know, please can I be uncancelled now? I've served my time. But it's funny that, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's yeah. funny that you, and you have served your time. And it's funny that, um, that I saw that just because I was thinking my perception even before I saw that, when I was thinking about interviewing you for the the podcast in terms of the sort of just the perception I had was that even when I saw you gigging I think maybe between lockdowns you and I've gigged at Angel a couple of times and sort of low-key trying yes. out sort of newish stuff and I just got a sense that there's been a massive transformation not in terms of how people receive you because I think people always audiences always really wanted to see you but you just seem quite different even in the last six months in terms of the sort of not confidence as a stand-up, because I guess you must, I'm guessing you probably know you're pretty fucking good stand-up, but there's something just seems to have shifted. Do you think you are getting uncancelled and that things are, the tide's turning without wishing to tempt fate? Yeah, so, um, let me think, no, okay. So I think that, you know what, I went, I went so many, it's been three years since all of that. And, and by all of that, I'm sure people listening probably know that we're referring to Strictly, if we're allowed to mention that well yes well no I know but I have to sort of deal with it don't I that's a big part of my life uh and you know and I'm really interested as well and again I'm just very interested as well in um just having worked on the other side of the camera for so long how the world just decides to take a side and that's it and at the moment the side might also be not the man's side and then the man is really cannot say a lot about that so not in any way that I'm not saying that lots of things that are coming out where women are quite rightly speaking out aren't enormously important but I was really interested in the psychology of what happened to you and the way the world just went yeah fuck him and it's like first of all it wasn't just you (laughs) that was another person there but everybody got very black and white about it and and three years on, it should be totally irrelevant, right? But it isn't completely. So I just wonder how that is for you to have experienced. I, 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 look, it's kind of, in, in plain speak, it's, you know, it, it kind of the whole thing nearly cost me my life. Literally it, your it, life. Oh, yeah. Because of how you depressed know, it made you feel. Traumatised is a mm-hmm. better word. Mm-hmm. traumatized depressed it was so um it's kind of sometimes i get upset when i realize that i was put through that um i you know i'm i'm aware that i cheated i was sorry for that i i went on national television and sat down on television and and apologize for that um i can't believe that 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 i can't believe that it's okay to put a human being through that and i find it so odd that i'm talking about myself it's so utterly bizarre it's so bizarre i try what's happened in the last few years sorry, last few years, last few months, is there's been some... <sighs> me and my agent, obviously... It's weird when you talk about the agent because it sounds like you're talking about the kind of business side of it. You kind of are, you know, your career and your life and your job. It all, it's all kind of one thing. But, you know, that, that kind of brought us together a bit more and and... And I know how hard that guy is kind of fighting for me. And I, and he knows the work that I'm putting in. And we kind of got some good news. And I hadn't had just some fucking good news in like two years, or maybe over two years. Just something, just some sort of ray of light where you go, it, it's, not, it's not over. My, my job is not over. My kind of dreams aren't over and just with that what it can do to you and you go hang on it's right get up let's let's fucking go and um i i reckon and that's not to say that i don't still have days where it all comes back and hits me and i have to relive it but for a much shorter period fortunately i feel you know i feel fine today i think about it every day 
There's you not still a day think about it every day. There's not a day that has ever gone by where I've not thought about it. And there are very, the days where I, if I, I have to kind of, if it pops into my head, I have to leave it as quickly as I can because it will, it will kind of defeat me. I, you know, how will you ever fathom? How do you, even in, you know, we're chatting here, how do I try and kind of, in a bite-sized chunk, articulate what happened? I don't fucking know. And by what happened, you mean the aftermath of it and how you were treated and how the world, because the world um, kind of, I know your Twitter um, page has, you know, kicked out, kicked out at the world and the world kicked back a lot fucking harder. But it's the worst. So, so, but you know that's a, sorry. That's a liberty. Lip, quote. I do right. know, and I yeah, love that because, song. Yeah. I love that yeah. song. Yeah, I'll yeah, put yeah. a link to it in the show notes. It's a great song. If I did run to music, that would be on my playlist. But it's but that is it, so. You really for somebody who seems a bit like you sort of you occupy the kind of outlying sort of side of society. It's that your whole thing is like I'm looking in and I can't do the shit other people do. And I can't handle this. Like this is yes. things keep going wrong. Like this is me. Yes. I'm I'm a bit totally. of a fucking you know hot mess. And then yes. and then so that's your whole thing that you've done on stage for years, but you found a career that you love and where you kind of belong as much as any of us do in comedy. But then the world really does go right, here's a massive boot in the guts and why don't you fuck off and die? Which yes. is a that's a hell of a thing to, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to live through it. I've worked with people and, you know, when I was on the sort of TV executive side, who've gone through phenomenally difficult things like that. So I've worked with on-screen talent who've gone through the whole world turning against them. Um, but it's, and I, so I've seen the kind of personal side of it, but that was kind of probably before we were in this cancel culture where people are so, people love to get in, immersed further into their version of events, right? So the kind of conspiracy theory equivalent of what everyone thinks about what you did, people are just going to like mine that for, to bolster their position and push you further off a cliff. Well, I, I mean, I don't really know, you know, when I look back, how I would, it's, it, it's what happened was so, it's life. It's incredibly complicated. And it's um, one in three, isn't it? How many people do? I mean, and when people when there are statistics for infidelity and they say one in three or whatever it is, I think they mean actually shagging somebody. I don't think they mean a kiss around the back of a pub. I don't think that probably even scores on the level of what people class as infidelity. That's the unfair bit, right? Is is literally who hasn't who hasn't, I suppose, and maybe this reflects badly on me, but I mean, yeah, that's the bit I thought as well. It's not it's not even like you managed to get as far as a hotel together. It's like, yeah, that that's the bit. It literally a kiss. But, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, uh, oh, God, it's so complicated. It's, so, it's such a difficult thing to touch on. Obviously, it was a very kind of unorthodox uh, end to a relationship. But that conversation, that conversation can't be had publicly. Because... Mm-hmm. Because surely it just can't. I mean, I don't even, I can't, I almost kind of can't find any other words to, to add to that. That conversation can't be had publicly. So if I'm accused of things, then I, what am I meant to do? To discuss this openly in the part? I can't. All so you I just have to is, sit quietly by and let it I be do, said. I have to say, I'm sorry for cheating. And that's undeniable. And I, you know, and at the and at the time, you're incredibly guilty and sorry about all the hurt and humiliation. I'm sure that that you've caused. But past that, I mean, I can't, I can't after that start going into what I think I'm guilty of, what I don't think I'm guilty mm-hmm. of. In a public try and, forum, you know, ex- yeah. explain this bit, justify that bit, maybe say that bit's fair. And I can't. What the fuck are you? What? What was I meant to? Do? I don't. I'm just like, what was I meant to do? I was. I just. I tried to keep my mouth shut, and and um, my what happened was kind of I, people will people will kill themselves again is what I think. Well, the re- I wrote a piece for the. Is what um, I think. 
I wrote a piece for the Financial Times, I think it was quite recently, about reality TV and the suicides attached to reality TV. And there have been suicides since. Um, I think the first, first one was in it, Sweden on like 25 years ago. I'm, tell, I'm telling you, I've been through it. It doesn't, it absolutely does not, does not surprise me in the, in the slightest. Yeah, it's, like, it's, uh, yeah just, go ahead. Well, just it, um, I expect it. Is what I would, I would yeah and it's and there are now um I'll put a link to the piece I wrote in in the notes to this but there were there are still are there are now safeguards in place so there didn't used to be at all so you put people into these reality environments you know I worked on when MTV was doing things like road rules and the real world which I'm guessing probably is pre you having watched it but those shows were kind of massive yeah, and the, yeah you were you'd have been walking around in your nappy but I was working I was just starting out in telly then and those shows were very gentle precursors to shows like Big Brother, not nearly as manipulated and properly like fly on the wall, much more innocent stuff. But even then, watching people live in a house for, for television, you know, for your viewing pleasure and hoping that some weird shit will happen that everyone can dine out on. It's kind of a very unhealthy thing and nothing really prepares you for that if you are just a sort of punter and have no idea what it's like to be in the limelight. So when I saw what was happening to you and by then I'd got out of working in reality TV and there is some guilt attached to it. You know, I live in a lovely house that's paid for largely by those shows. So, you know, I'm part of the fucking problem. But when I saw what was happening to you, I thought I should buy you a house. No, I didn't. But I did yeah, think. I think I think what you should have to do is any of those reality stars that come out of those programs have to come and live in your house. Well, at the moment, no. Oh, my kids have left home. I'd like that. I'm, I'd like anyone to come and live in this house. The cat even died. I'm just getting, it's like, you know, we're losing people by the day. Namaste, motherfuckers. In terms of the, because um, the interesting thing about this is often when, even when there's a rumour about somebody, and particularly on the circuit, within the our world, people can often really turn on that person and be like, well, I knew he was a dickhead. And yeah, sure, he gaslit somebody. In your case, it's the absolute opposite. And I, I think you probably do get a sense of this, even though you're not in the rooms where people talk about you, which is you do seem to have a really resoundingly positive reputation among people who know you and work with you. And that that hasn't seemed to have been tarnished by this. Have you been aware of that? Uh, yes. No, I have. I'm really... That really helped me. Um, no, that's really helped me, and and I've I've absolutely felt. And um, let's call it the comedy community. And I, I know I, I know it's not everyone. A couple of people. There were a couple of people that I don't particularly know. I think that spoke up online against me. I think that was sort of against the kind of. I think that was at the time that there was a movement happening. I, I don't know if it was particularly me but I was kind of included in it but that's okay I don't know those people um I think that were they the speaking certain... against the principle of what you were being accused of having done rather than you personally I, having I, done it um do you know what I'm not I'm not entirely sure in which is a bit odd but I know that uh, I've just got it, it, it um I was just told by quite a few people you know you don't. You don't want to be gigging with. Basically, you know, I won't yeah. be gigging with these people anytime. We'll soon name them and the people Stephen Grant said are alcoholics in the show notes, uh, <laughs> or at least circulate <laughs> it on a WhatsApp group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it will be. It's almost, don't worry about that. It's on WhatsApp anyway. <laughs> no, but um, no. Um, yes, no. I look. I really did, and it um, it it really it it gets you sometimes because um, this business is. I think I said it at the beginning. I keep saying it about it. it it's brutal. It's brutal. We're Did you always think that own. even before you got a right good kicking? Like, had you always been aware of that? And did you know going into such a high-profile show? I know that um, I, I, Sandy Toxvik, who I know kind of quite well, well, I know her wife well, she, I think she found going on to Bake Off a whole different level of fame. And she just said, even though she'd been kind of known for three decades being on a show that is everybody's primetime favourite. She just found it a whole shift. And in her case, nothing kind of terrible happened. She, she just did the show. But were, were you thinking that when you went on to Strictly, obviously you weren't thinking this would be the outcome, but did you have an awareness that that's a whole other level of fame and all um, that that brings with it? I was like, oh no, I, well, I was naive. I was naive. I was ignorant about the, the Strictly curse. I kind of didn't know, you know, to, 
I don't know. I didn't really take it seriously. I didn't think about it. And, and um, I just, you know, the first three weeks of that program were three of the best weeks of my life. It, you, you were, you, I was on a big show. What are we in this for? We're into, we're, we're comedians. And not, I appreciate that not everyone's like this. I, and, I, and, I, and actually, I respect it. I think it's fucking cool. But, you know, I, I'm someone that I like a big stage and I like making as many people as possible laugh. And, and so when you're on the number one show in the country and you're, you're, you're walking the street and people are shouting good luck on Saturday, what a, just what a wonderful thing to have experienced. I only, I only did one gig during my, that three-week period. And the reception when I walked on, I never had anything like it. And I, I've not had anything like that before or since. I felt it was so weird. I got to feel, it's like a sort of fairy tale or a horror film. I got to feel what it would be like to kind of be popular for one night. And, and, then, um, and then on October the 6th, that I would become kind of infamous, I suppose. And so I, I, that was extremely um, difficult, you know, leaving the house and, being in public and being on the tube and just being anywhere was absolutely fucking terrifying. I don't know how these people do it. And by I, these I mean, people, you mean you mean who? Celebrities, so, you know, like, like massive celebrities. Where well, like celebrities where it's kind of their life, where like they're on the front page a few times a year because they've done another thing or something and. I just find it like, uh, I just don't know how they do it. I just don't know. I just, I, I was, I still don't like it. I still look up. I look at people. I think, oh, they don't like me. What what article have they read? Mm-hmm. What I, I'm trying to guess which bit, which bit of the, sometimes you're talking about it to someone and they go, I don't even know that bit. And you go, oh, oh yeah. Well, there was this other bit to it that no. And it's like, and then by the way, bearing in mind, and you know, there's going to be, there's a whole story that there's everything that's not been printed. Yeah, you know, yeah, there's, yeah. There's well, no your real side life. of the story. Yeah, your, your real <laughs> yeah. side of the story. Yeah. And did you, um, when I, because, well, it's, it's interesting to me kind of coming to this, I've always been really wary of getting much telly, which probably sounds like me going, <laughs> you'll be going, well, you're doing well then, Callie. But I've been wary <laughs> of, I definitely, I the reason I like doing the bits, the bits of telly I've done, and I'm, I'd love to be doing a couple, two or three bits a year, that's about all I want to do. And that's because it helps me do other things. Um, and, and I enjoy doing it while I'm doing it. But the idea of fame, having worked with a lot of famous people my entire career, I absolutely genuinely mean it when I say the thought of fame on a kind of somebody will recognize me when I'm out, you know, with my kids level fills me with horror, largely for the reasons that you have just described. And it, it it's very hard to be a celebrity. Well, it's impossible to be a celebrity where people have only got good things to say about you, even if you're a national treasure. There'll be loads of people going, I fucking hate that national treasure. Oh, so you're God, the, it, yeah. it's incredibly yeah. hard. But you're still are you still. Are you still? I'm not saying that you're in this for, or that you were in it for fame, but you do like big rooms, big stages. You've always had comedy hey, ambition. Do you want I, fame? Yeah. I want fame. Well, doesn't it? Unfortunately, and I think well, that's key. Look, I naturally use the word unfortunately. Doesn't it? It it, it has the relationship with. Do I want to walk out at the Hammersmith Apollo? The three and a half thousand people, but and I'm going to give them everything I can. That dream, that drawing that I've made, do I want to do that? There's no question. That's never been in question. But so, do you need to do? Do you need to? Be, you know, do people need to see who you are, and and do they need to be shown that you can give them that good time? Well, unfortunately, yeah, that's that is what you have to do because they're, they're not, you can't just put some posters up and they go. Who's this guy? Should we go and spend <laughs> so for 30 you, quid, you know. For you, it would be, you'd be in it because of what you want to be doing on stage and you'd have to put up with the offstage stuff because that's... Totally. Yeah, okay. So that- oh, oh, yeah, I am not a... I'm not a um, I, I absolutely politely do uh, the selfies. I, I see it as part of the contract. You know, I, I see it as part of the... Um, it, it's... People... The the money, I mean, not not the money I earn, but the the money if you were if you were a, if you're a big household name 
and you get to live this kind of this this lifestyle that that people you know couldn't even imagine living them i'm very i'm very happy to give people the self i'm very happy to do that but i i certainly do not i do not look for it and i don't i'm much more better on my own and um yeah i'm not i'm not i tell you what actually sorry mumbling when i was doing lots of bits and bobs in my sort of mid-20s and late 20s you know you'd get invites to premieres you'd get invites to all these things and i never went so i think i was quite good at that i sort of stuck to my gun you know my heroes are jack d and lee evans and dylan moran um which i think you can kind of see in in, in kind of who i am and my mm-hmm. act and I, you know i can't imagine <laughs> dylan turning up <laughs> putting his arm around <laughs> gwyneth <laughs> Yeah, it's not likely. So, yeah, so so um, yeah, do you know what I mean? There's a kind of there's a kind of distinction between you know being on things and kind of being popular for what you do, and then um, but yeah, be, being a I can't you know at the opening of a new yeah zoo well there's the kind of there's the, the it's glad you've said zoo uh because you know obviously now you've said that i'll say to my son i think sean wants to go and open a zoo but i think the um <laughs> but the anyone who doesn't know my son's a zookeeper in case you think that's a weird thing i just said so the so the the idea of oh. the um because there's the kind of courting celebrity but the bit people don't realize and again i sort of realized this over the years is you have to get to a real tipping point of celebrity before you don't have to do normal things like go to the shop and get on the tube. So this is the whole area where you're getting really well known. (laughs) You have to do normal shit. And you're like, no, there's no one. I haven't got a bloody helicopter taking me there. No one's going out to Tesco's for me. I mean, I know nowadays we can order it, but it's so, so there's that bit where you are. And I guess you will have known that when you're sort of huddled up in a hotel in the aftermath of the whole scandal for Strictly. And you know that at a certain point you're going to be back on the bus, back on the tube, going for a run. There's not going to be an entourage protecting you. You've reminded me of something awful. That that's my um, main aim in the podcast. Yes, (laughs) we can hang out now. Yeah, (laughs) is when um, when I was still on Twitter, which I'm absolutely nowhere near. Someone tweeted like something like, um, you know, give us a give, tell us the time you saw a celebrity or something. And I was mentioned in this as a you know as a response, and there were a few responses from people saying i i've given sean walsh evils on the tube um for what he did on strictly and uh, luckily was this recently when was when was this well i've been off twitter sort of since lockdown one i think i think because i just there was too much abuse and i just came off but um so probably probably i'm gonna say probably a year and a half ago something like that Mm -hmm. And you, you, you know that it was kind of my fears, my paranoia coming true. I was like, yeah, that's what I felt like I was going through. People were looking at me, and they want to let you know. They want to let you know that I don't like you. That's such a terrifying thing to 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 live with. I do have to say, by the way, just to, just to be because I don't want to just be negative about um, being in the spotlight or that spotlight. Yes, but you know. The, the, other, the, uh, the flip side have to be positive here. I was in Brighton today with a friend and a man across the, uh, the other table, across from us at the cafe, went, I can't believe it. I went, what? And he went, I am listening to you now <laughs> in my AirPods <laughs> and you've just sat down. <laughs> and he was listening to our podcast. So what, a, you know, and I just said that, I'm I'm so happy that you're listening to podcast. Thank you so much because we we made that you know off uh, off our own bat and we we put our own energy into it. No one asked us to do it, so you know that's amazing. So yes, I went through something horrific where people are, are happy to make me feel bad, but that seems to be in the past. We're moving forward, and now people are going. I'm listening to your podcast. That's what I dreamed of. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say sit here and go, you know, I just want to do my thing and go. People want to come over and tell me that they've enjoyed the thing that I've made or enjoyed the thought that I've had to try and make them laugh. Fuck. I mean, that is, that's what I'm doing here. You had the story, and again, I'll tell it because you'll sound like a dick if you say it, but again, this was on your oh, um, no. Insta. The, that guy, a gig you did, a guy stood up at the end of the gig. Tell me if I'm, t- I mean, you're welcome to tell it if you don't think it makes, it doesn't make you sound like a narcissist. I know I what you're going to say, and I, sh- 
and I shared. I'm sorry, I shared it. So tell the story. Tell the story. I know you didn't say it. No, you you shared someone saying it. But I love it because there is a bit of me. I think we probably call this episode uncancelled. And I love the fact that you are get, you're getting defrosted a bit, aren't you? You're coming out of the freezer. You're not ready to put in the oven yet, but you're getting there. I reckon if you're a bit of a bit of warming up chicken, we'll be able to eat you within about three months. So what what tell us that story then? Because I loved that. I loved it. I loved it. You don't get surprised much when you've been going kind of 15 years, 14, 15 years. Um, I, I um, was in Bridgewater and... Um, Not always a promising start to an anecdote, but this is a good one. Yes. And well, actually, do you know what? The venue is absolutely gorgeous. It, it, the name escapes me. Beautiful venue. And um, I finished the show and I'm just about to, you know, say my goodbyes and this bloke, who we'd kind of been mucking about with a tiny bit throughout the show, he'd been joining in a little bit. He got up when I was about to say goodbye, he stood up and he turned around and he faced the audience. And I just thought, oh, fucking hell, here we go. <laughs> what now? And he held up his pint and he went, 15 quid for that. <laughs> that is the best money I've ever spent in my life and started... Uh, a round of applause, and I and then I and then got, got a standing ovation. And you, you just that's that. I keep using the word dream, but that's what you dream of. That's why you do it because you want to p- give people that good a time. And and you know, if you can try and give them that good a time, then that's what they'll give back. It was just it was just a real moment for me. I, you know, I don't get a standing ovation every time. It's what I aim for. And it was just, I just felt like, oh, it's, it's, wor- it's working. The belief is working. Yeah, I love that story. And I'm glad we've got it on the podcast. So it's here in audio form as well as on social media. No, yeah. it's a lovely story. And it's a pretty good metaphor, I reckon, for the fact that you have paid your debt. That's you coming out of jail. That's you can doing I, the fucking I, arms wide, scored a goal, served my time. I'm out now. I'm not there yet. I know where I want to be. Let me ask you. Because I like the conversation. I, I like it when we chat. I loved what you were saying earlier. What it is that, like... Now, obviously, there are loads of deep psychological reasons that the two of us do what we do. But on a kind of... On, 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 more on the surface, what is it that you, that you want? What, what is it that, you know, you're, when, we, when we get up, when you get up on stage, what is it you want to happen? And, and, and kind of why? It's funny you say that because when I started doing it, it was definitely mm-hmm. a kind of a, I was just sick of people assuming things about women, not, not women my age. I didn't feel like I was a spokesperson for a 40 something woman, but I just sort of felt like I'm kind of stereotyping myself and saying, well, you've always, I'd always worked in telly. I'd never, from doing drama really young and presenting a bit when I was young, I'd just stopped doing it. And then I was like, who's telling me it's too late unless it's me? Like, really, who's to tell me? that it's too late. And the good thing about stand-up is it is fairly, it is quite a meritocracy, right? I mean, if you're all right, you tend to get stage time. And if you're shit, you don't always get stage time. So I know it's not as simple <laughs> as that, but as some people yeah, do, yeah. but that's, let's not talk about them. We'll get Stephen Grant to publish that list as well. But so, so if I'm honest, it's really changed probably because you and I think our paths probably first crossed a couple of years ago. And in the beginning, I think it was like, it was like rebelling against some kind of golden cage I'd built for myself, which is I'm this yes. polished TV executive and I'm playing the game of life and I'm raising my children, I'm earning good money. And I was kind of like, I think the life I wanted to live was the one that I stopped living when I was like 22. And, and then I was like, but you don't have to have stopped. Just pick it up again then. Fuck it. And so, so there was a sort of a kind of like, that's not going to be the thing I wish I'd done. I'm still doing it. But then, so then it was just, I guess, the kind of social experiment of unlearning all my poise as a corporate presenter and the way I'd always had to be sort of no chink in the armor in boardrooms and then becoming a much more of a mess on stage, which is much more me. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, they, no one laughs if I'm all polished. Like they want to see the real 
shit that's gone on. And then now, Absolutely. and now it's lockdown had quite an impact on, it had an impact on everyone, obviously. But in terms of what I'm doing on stage, I just feel, and you've probably seen stuff I've done that's a bit half and half. It's what I was doing and now what I want to do that's a bit darker and a bit more messy and a bit more me. And now I'm thinking, why am I doing this unless I'm taking more risks on stage? So I find it very easy to charm audiences and, and kind of ride on the coattails of people liking me and, and me knowing how to get a reasonable laugh, which I know is obviously hard one but there's a bit more to it really and I'd like who I am on stage to be more like who I am off stage which is a bit more complicated and dark do, right, does do that make what? sense I, 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 right. it absolutely makes sense it was it was um wonderfully explained and I think that you're, you're so right about that I think the reason we keep going and we keep digging and we keep writing new stuff is we're all trying to sort of drill into this sense of humor that I don't think we're always ever quite encapsulating. And you kind of, each show I do, I go, yeah, that was more me, but it's not, it's not, I'm not quite. That's interesting you say that. That's interesting. Well, I think last night I said, I said a thing. I talk about how um, kind of, you know, facetiously, nothing I say on, on stage should be taken seriously, but I, I'm talking about how I'm at, I'm first, (laughs) I'm at 35 and um, I'm talking about how your your dreams are dead. That is quite funny. Very ironic you're telling this to me. Fucking hell. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 um, uh, and and I do this bit, I talk about dreams and then I I say um, that your dream, you know, it doesn't mean you, you can still have dreams when you're older. They've just got to be slightly more attainable. Like I wanted to be a movie star. I, now would like a garden (laughs) 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 and um and that had worked I tried that at the store on Monday and that had worked and then last night in Brighton and this is the bit I'm sorry this um, I'm awful talking about my um, own thoughts but the um the line that I thought oh god if someone else had said this it would have made me laugh it was a it was a sort of tag and I said um Something like, you know, fuck a car chase sequence. I just want to be able to go outside without talking to people because that's what a garden is. And I thought <laughs> if, if, a friend, if a friend said that to me, that would have really made me laugh. There's a sort of bleakness to it. Yeah. It's got an observation, yeah. but there's a kind of bleakness to it. There's a kind of story behind it. And it's like those, those are the things you're trying to like, you're trying to push that bit of you out more. Get that... That's who I am. If you knew me, that is exactly what the real me would say. Was that, a to- that, was that something that just came to you? So that wasn't part of what you'd written. That just came to you as a topper on the night. I would love to say it was. I actually thought about it before I walked okay, on, I, into my head. Because I definitely find I feel much more natural as an MC than an act. And I feel and all my all my best stuff, which, you know, you on a bad day would be me, what I might aspire to in a few years. Um, but my the the best stuff I ever come up with is always the stuff that happens in the room, either emceeing or stuff that builds on material that's really shit that I've written. And then when I start doing it, then something funny comes out of it. And I definitely have more of a capacity if I were ever. T- and the things I come up with that I like, I think it's because it's me. It's because I haven't got time to think what I'm thinking. It's just an uncurated, funny thing comes out, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. probably really yeah, authentic. Yeah. And I definitely find like I'm I'm. I think I'm way funnier when I'm on not literally Tinder now because who's on Tinder, but on the dating apps, I'm much funnier when I'm chatting to if someone's got a bit of spark and there's a bit of a I'm much funnier in that environment than I am on stage, which is a bit sad. I could just publish my uh, hinge messages. No, 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 every, no, 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 no. Everyone feels like that. Everyone. I, I don't know. I don't know a comic that doesn't feel like that. I would say one thing I'm quite lucky of, and I've only just thought this really is that. Because because the when I do when I do what I do the way I like to, there's such a big performance that I can kind of be funny in a different way that you couldn't possibly. But by the way, uh, in saying that was kind of the way I was before I started stand up, and my friends would have to go, "Will you fucking sit down? You're embarrassing." <laughs> And Sounds so you like get kids. to take. That's them. why you have kids yeah. to tell you shit like that every day. Right there, you go. So that's uh, yeah. So then, so you get to go on the stage and be 
the person that everyone is telling you not to Yeah, be. don't be an annoying twat unless someone's paying you to do it for 20 minutes on stage at the comedy store and then shut up and go home. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? I think the moment has to be my mum when I was 17 taking me to the comedian in Brighton. Comedy had been my obsession but I didn't know about these things called comedy clubs and I didn't know that you could sort of do it and not be famous the weird logic that I don't really understand that I had you know Lee Evans was famous and Jack D was famous I didn't understand that they came from this place called the circuit so when I was 17 my mum took me to the comedia and Stephen Grant walked out and you know what do you do for a living whatever it was they said and he had 250 people in the palm of his hand and you go, hang on a second. Anyone can do this. What the fuck? And, that, and that's the choice was made then. That was it. I kind of thought I was going to be, as a kid, a film star, you know, in that, that sort of childish way. And then, yeah, that, that's it. There's no, that's the one. That, that's the one. But, but I know I was at Comedia last night I looked at the table. I said to Dave, the tech who I've known since I started there, and I said, that's where I sat and watched Stephen for the first time coming out in a yellow T-shirt and a red jule, dressed as badly then as he does now. Yeah, just different bad. Although maybe not. He might still be wearing that. I thought it was his cycling yeah. outfit, but now I'm wondering if it's his stage outfit. But yeah, so that's, that's <laughs> definitely my number. Yeah, that's it there, right there. And what's your favourite joke? I think the joke that I like the most, or, or just like whenever someone asks me that, the one that comes to mind, so therefore it's that, when I first heard it, is Jack D. Um, um, and he's he, he mentions uh, um, Barrymore. He mentions Barrymore and the crowd go like, ooh, right? And Jack goes... No, 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 no. Something like this. Something like this. No, 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 no. Nothing. Um, I have nothing against Michael Young. Big fan of Michael's, but yeah, I, I was reading this in the paper, and I saw that there were four, something like five different traces of drugs in his system, and four, four different traces of semen up his ass, and I thought. I have friends round. We have pasta. <laughs> and if you watch it, right, if you watch it on the, the, the DVD, I had it on VHS, if you watch, honestly, you, he gets, you know, like that lot, if you, if you hit a, you know, uh, a zinger, as Josh Whitaker used to call them, or probably still does, you get a zinger and it, it, it pop. I call it a pop. Yeah, a mm-hmm. line, it pops. Mm-hmm. That line, if you watch the video, it pops twice. It actually pops. It's like it pops. And then people are like, <laughs> the, they kind of think about it again and then it gets the same laugh. Like the laugh doesn't go down. It's, I think it's one of the funniest. To, 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 yeah, yeah, there you go. And um, if there's one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what is it? Oh. God. Uh, um, I, uh, um, two things, I think. Is, uh, I think I've kind of touched on this. You caught me on a good moment. I had a good show last night. I'm feeling positive. I, in the words of Kate Bush, don't give up. Yeah. And I think you, I think you obviously, you obviously, that applied to your life. You said, you know, you, you went, no, hang on. This isn't what I want to, why am I, t- who's telling me I can't do that? I'm going to do it. You've mm-hmm. got, you've got to, you've got, do not give up. Give it everything. Um, the other thing I would say is, and it's probably to men more than it is women, but just, just, just decide what pockets are for what and stick to it. <laughs> That was Sean Walsh. 
every episode I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I'm going to try and this week it's a music running combo. I said to Sean when we spoke that I never run to music but actually I remembered that when I ran the London Marathon, did I mention that I run marathons? I don't like to talk about it. My kids made me a playlist as a surprise for on the day in case I needed something for the last few miles. And I saved it and I saved it until I ran down into the embankment underpass. And at that bit, the crowd noise completely disappears and all you can hear is the footsteps of the other runners. And I put it on and the very first track was David Bowie's Heroes. I'm getting a bit funny even talking about this now. And I lost my shit. Maybe it was sweat. I'm pretty sure it was tears. So I'm going to do my next couple of runs to music, starting with Heroes and then some Blink 182 for my kids and for Sean's tattoo. So that's it for this week. Thanks as always to you for supporting the podcast. Remember to take the time to rate, review and recommend it if you would be so kind. And we will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to comedian and actor Tim McGarry. You know, I'm like an Alan Partridge. I'm very big in Northern Ireland and I'm nowhere else outside Northern Ireland. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.